everyone, and welcome once again to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. To begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. I'd also like to acknowledge the custodians of all the lands from where anybody listening to this podcast today is joining us from. So today we talk partnerships between organisations, people, communities, both in and outside the public sector, and how they can be strengthened. Partnerships are essential to achieving any sort of change. And back in 2019, the Australian Public Service Review recognised the need for strong partnerships to deliver better services for Australian people. Now, fast forward to 2022 and the Minister for the Public Service, Senator Katie Gallagher, announced during IPA's national conference that the Australian government, quote, will work with the leaders of the Australian Public Service on a vision for partnership between the public service, people, communities, businesses, the not-for-profit sector, universities, states, territories, and others. So partnerships and how to strengthen them is very much on the agenda. As APS reform gathers pace, we ask, what does it take to build an effective partnership both inside and outside the public sector? Professor Janine O'Flynn is the director at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy. She is an expert in public administration and management, having advised governments around the world on issues ranging from the design of effective performance management systems through to collaborative approaches to policy design and implementation. She's a fellow of the US National Academy of Public Administration and the Institute of Public Administration of Australia, and she sits on several advisory boards, including the IPA ACT Council. Welcome, Janine, to you. Thank you so much. David Pullen is the Assistant Secretary, Cabinet Resilience and Crisis Management Division at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. He was also previously Acting First Assistant Secretary of the COVID-19 Transition Task Force at the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. In 2020, in his role as Senior Advisor in the Treasurer's Office, he advised the Treasurer and Prime Minister on the design and implementation of major economic stimulus measures and supports. Welcome, David, to you. Thank you. Great to be here. So... Partnerships, they are a key component of the APS Review's second priority, an APS that puts people and business at the centre of policy and services. Look, I think we can agree that it'd be ideal if all partnerships were able to do that, but I want to hear from you, what does the ideal partnership look like? And David, I'll, I'll start with you. Sure, thank you. Well, I think each partnership will be different, but I think there's a few key ingredients. And I think I'd summarise those under the banners of will and skill. So under will, I think, when I think about will, I think about you've got to have a common purpose. Um, And that's never going to be fully aligned, but there needs to be some commonality in there that's sort of driving you uh, together. And also under will, I think you need trust and respect. Um, I think 
if each party is kind of willing to invest in the relationship, willing to be open and vulnerable and uh, listen and seek control, then you're more likely to lead to a better outcome. So that's kind of the will component. On the skill component, there I think about capability. So the great thing about really good partnerships is where you're bringing together diverse capability. Um, So you might be partnering with someone that uh, allows you to do things that you couldn't do yourself, either because you couldn't do them as quickly, you couldn't do them as well, or you just kind of couldn't do them at all. And they might be, you know, things that they might bring might be ideas and perspectives, or it might be networks or technical capability. Um, And then I think the last thing around um, skill is systems. Um, So you kind of need really good systems to make it work. So that goes to things like governance. It goes to other things like um, your reporting and communication channels. So those kind of will and skill components are incredibly important. And so one of the things that I worked on was the the Sydney Energy Forum with the Business Council of Australia and the International Energy Agency. And that was a great example of where there was a really shared purpose about having, uh, you know, developing clean energy supply chains. And um, what was really fantastic about that was the Business Council was able to bring uh, its really excellent networks across the Australian business community and the International Energy Agency was similarly able to bring its networks uh, from across the international community, as well as its deep technical expertise and understanding of the energy environment. Um, so with that kind of shared purpose, but also the combined skill of, of their networks and understanding, we're able to put on a fantastic event. And so that's what I mean by kind of will and skill. Hmm. Well, that's a interesting and and very comprehensive framework. So Janine, for you, what does an ideal partnership look like for you? I think David's done a really great job. In fact, I might steal his his will (laughs) and skill. Um, It's a great great way to think about the various components that go into great partnerships. Um, I think you mentioned things that that I would have said around vulnerability and trust and common purpose is a really critical ingredient. Um, The other one I just mentioned perhaps is time and it takes time to build trust. So trust isn't something we start with. It's something obviously that we build build over time and that allows us to work in different ways. Um, the, the other thing I think that's really important to that I'd like to point out at this stage is that there's lots of different ways to work together. And some of those are going to be in deep partnership mode, which was just really, really very well sort of described uh, by David around these high trust, vulnerable sort of relationships that um, you're leveraging off the other parties' expertise or capacities to do something that you can't do yourself. Um, And that's a particular way of working together, but there's a whole continuum of ways that we want to work together. And so the emphasis on partnerships at this point in time is a really Um, you know, we're getting a lot of attention on this idea of partnerships and as we have around collaboration and other ways of working together. But I think it's just important to say from the outset that that's one model that works in some circumstances. It's not the way that we're going to do everything in the public service. Um, Some things we want to do by ourselves um, and some things we have to or, or want to do with others. So, I often think that um, another great little, uh, I love the will and skill, but I'm going to say time and trust and turf is also another way to think about that. Uh, Three T's. So it's about investment of time. It's about thinking about building trust and it's about seeding turf or um, in the most sort of collaborative mode of partnership, it's about the idea of shared turf that 
you don't have yours and you let me onto it, but in fact that we share this turf together in pursuit of some common purpose. Mm. So, Janine, your research focuses on public sector management and both of you have raised this notion of finding a, a, a common purpose at the at the centre and the, at the essence of uh, a, a strong and effective partnership. But building a common purpose, uh, what are the barriers to, to finding that common purpose? Well, I mean, part of it can be around what what is it that each of these organisations are incentivised. If we're talking about organisations working together, one of the challenges we often find in partnerships is different incentive structures or... Um, you know, d- different types of operating environments. So one of the challenges certainly I've seen in my research is when public and private organisations join together in partnership mode and they'll be, de- they'll be driven by different sorts of um, motivational or incentive structures. So obviously in the public sector, you're responding to um, political cues or the, the sort of ambitions of ministers and that's quite different than operating in the private sector where you'll be delivering, um, you know, to a board or to shareholders. You'll have a different set of expectations. Where you can line up those incentive structures towards some common purpose, I think we get great outcomes. Um, and where they pull in opposite directions, you can see, I think over time, some of the failures of attempts at partnership. Um, those incentive structures matter a lot and how we align them towards a common purpose is really important. Mm. And what about trust? Super important. I mean, trust trust is something that in a sense is the lubricant of all relationships. Um, and if we think about, you know, people to people sort of relationships, that's where trust is built. So um, I often think about partnerships as being built on relational capital and we can talk about that as trust, but we build it slowly over time. Um, in the theory of, of sort of thinking about trust, we often talk about gift giving. And I don't mean we're wrapping up presents and giving them to each other, but we, we exchange things that are of value to each other and that allows us to build trust over time. Um, and when we breach each other's um, trust or we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to another party and that's exploited, we see a breakdown in trust, whether that's between you know, a public and private organisation in a PPP or whether it's between community um, and the public service in trying to, to do things in different ways. So trust is absolutely um, fundamental to how we do partnerships, how you build them, how you sustain them over time. And David, earlier you mentioned vulnerability, which I think yeah. is a really challenging word, I think, and a really descriptive word, so, and, and being vulnerable, particularly when yeah. there's so much at stake, and being open and being confident that you yeah. can be your open and transparent self. How do, you, how do you reflect about being vulnerable inside some of those um, partnership development uh, I think engagements? that's really important. I think, you know, when you, you're vulnerable, you're actually ceding control because uh, you're acknowledging that it's it's a joint exercise, but actually by being vulnerable, you're actually decreasing the risk, and you sort of actually more likely to to lead to a better result. Um, I think by being vulnerable, you're also pretty open about kind of what you don't know and what you're maybe not good at, and you're also um, open as things change. So you're kind of sharing a lot of information, but. You're taking a risk, right? Because you've often a lot of that's done you know, on a confidential basis, and as Janine said, you kind of run the risk that that's exploited. Mm. Um, but what well, tips? But the, what, do you have any yeah. tips for people to how they can confidently be vulnerable? I think you you want to be kind of quite 
cautious about who you're going to partnership with, right? Like, for example, with the Sydney Energy Forum, we we partnered with the Business Council of Australia and the International Energy Agency, where they have long-term relationships with the Australian government. They're they're trusted, reputable organisations. And uh, on COVID-19, we also partnered with the Doherty Institute, which has really, really strong credibility. Um, So there was existing trust. And I think that goes to Janine's point that you build trust over time. Um, whereas some new partners, I mean, you, you can be more vulnerable, but it, it probably takes a bit longer. Sure. So um, common purpose, trust, vulnerability, but also in an earlier answer, you, you well, both of you a lot, uh, alluded to this notion of alignment. So once we've got that in place, we sort of have to start to be aligned. So how do you go about allocating roles and responsibilities to be sure that people are clear about what it is that they're supposed to do? I think the kind of the starting point is just being aware of each other's capabilities and what each party brings to the table. And then it's a, it's a discussion with the partners sort of agreeing on, on sort of your skill set and, and so forth and then allocating those roles and responsibilities. Um, sometimes it's pretty straightforward, other times it's less so. And I mean, some of that can be put together in a terms of reference or something else to sort of get that, that agreement and often through the journey of the partnership, the partnership also evolves and things change and communication is really important. But with the Doherty Institute Treasury and Health, I mean, the Doherty Institute had the epidemiological forecasting expertise, um, Treasury brought to the table its economic modelling analysis and economic expertise. And health brought a health policy perspective and PMC was able to bring it all together with its coordinating capability and uh, working closely with the states and territories and national cabinets. So there's kind of a, a natural partnership in terms of everyone brought those different capabilities and then it was just making sure that was formalised and understood through mm. writing it down. And then how do you manage the sort of respectful boundaries between each of those and, and, and where the priorities are such that people feel that they are adequately acknowledged, engaged, and given the time to make their contribution to the partnership? Um, I think you do that through through respect, really. I mean, if you've got an open, trusted relationship, respect, you've got, got an attitude where you're listening to each party, you're listening to their perspective, making sure when you're holding meetings that you're allocating time to hear everyone and contribute. Uh, then, then everyone will feel like they're being heard, and then you're you're involving everyone in the decision making process. I think that that certainly helps, and also being open to people playing a little bit outside their role as well. Um, so it's it's kind of it's not black and white. There's a lot of greys in the partnership, but it's also being very clear which part of the team are you on, where are you kind of adding adding most value. Mm. So Janine, you come from a, a public sector research background. Why is it important to bridge the divide between some of those research insights and the ultimate decisions that are made when when policy is agreed and and ultimately implemented? Uh, to me, it's it's absolutely essential because. Both of those parties have separate, and we're talking about partnerships, separate types of expertise. Um, but particularly in the field of public administration and public policy, where I spend most of my time um, and effort over over my career, these these are really tightly sort of interlinked 
areas. So I can't have anything, in a sense, legitimate to say about what's going on in public management unless I know what's going on in the day-to-day lives of of public servants who are practicing in that. And so I spend a lot of my time in those conversations in my classrooms. Just earlier today, I was meeting um, with colleagues in the APS. And and so I think there's a really, in, in some fields, it's quite tightly linked and there's a very iterative sort of process. So um, for scholars in public management and administration, we're always very keen to know what's going on in the ground that feeds into our applied research and our more big picture, long-term theoretical thinking, which we then, I think, have a really great relationship with practitioners. They they test us on that. There's nothing like standing in a classroom, um, you know, with 100 people from across the world to really let you know if your work is hitting the mark. Um, and people do let you know that. And it's a real sense test for us. Um, but being in those um, being in those rooms in the classroom, having the opportunity through organisations like IPA um, to have access to what is keeping people up at night or what are the challenges that they're facing really helps. So I've often thought that our field, fields are some of the most tightly bound. Um, we're driven by the challenges that are confronting public servants in practice. We hope through our research to be helping them to do a better job. Um, and at various points in time, perhaps we've all been better or, or worse at exchange our ideas. Um, but this morning, um, I spent a couple of hours in the room with leading scholars um, from across Australia and people in um, Prime Minister and Cabinet talking about just that. How do we work together? How do we bring our expertise? Um, how do we share that? And I think it's great for academics to be learning about, you know, what it is that really challenges our colleagues in practice, how we can help in that, but also how do we get a sense of what are the um, sort of dynamics of the world that they live in? Um, how do we help to, to improve that? How do we help to learn um, how we can do our work better. My work is always better by having had a conversation with someone who has to practice that on a day-to-day basis mm. um, than just talking to my colleagues up and down the corridor. It's it's very important. Sure. So, David, from an implementation um, perspective, what, what role does diversity of perspective from researchers, other organisations or people of different skills play in uh, an effective partnership? It's absolutely essential, um, I think particularly for, for really complex problems. And I'd even go to the extent to say even including compressed timeframes. I mean, a partnership might take you a bit longer at the front end, but for complex problems such as COVID, um, you're probably not going to get there solving something by yourself. Uh, and so what the diversity does, it allows your partners to kind of see the problem from another angle and allows you to identify a lot more options and their costs and benefits. It kind of helps you pick up a bunch of blind spots, but also allows you to develop a sort of a wider solution set. So the way I think about it is it actually scales your upside and it manages your downside risk. Um, and I've got a couple of examples I can share with you um, on the Sydney Energy Forum with the Business Council. They really helped us re- kind of reimagine what the event could really look like. So that they kind of came up with the idea that with the business people coming out, how can you get them out of the, the forum venue for a day and get them to go and see some of the great things that Australia is doing down in the Illawarra with hydrogen and see some of the, the things at University of New South Wales around sort of their solar research. So to make it a really experiential experience and to showcase Australia. Um, and so that was kind of the upside, kind of imagining kind of what could be. 
And then on the, the sort of the de-risking on the downside, sort of helping you sort of discover blind spots that you wouldn't even think of just because you just don't, they're kind of unknown unknowns. And one of those with the forum was we're about to pick a date and we had a Japanese representative on our advisory panel and he said, oh, no, no, you can't choose that date because the, the just Japanese public holidays during that period and they'll all be in reporting season, so just no Japanese will come. And it was, you know, otherwise would have chosen that date and uh, we end up having really good representation from the Japanese government, including Japanese ministers, and uh, it, it's really helped de-risk the events. So um, diversity, I think, is essential. Um both in terms of getting a good good result, but also reducing risk. And Janine, from from your perspective, what what do you out of David's answer? What do you take there in terms of best practice around building partnerships? I mean, one of the one of the things that really struck me as you were just talking is this idea of you know like you can draw down on relational capital and I often think about it like that. It sounds like a terrible way to talk about something that's built up over time and is, you know, we sort of can't really measure it and it's something that's important for the way that we function as humans together. But when when you can build up that trust and that relational capital, you can draw down on it in different settings. And, and I was thinking a lot um, of the work that was described, David, that you were doing on COVID um, and, you know, that that allowed government to draw on expertise from across all sectors of society in a very compressed time frame. But that was a crisis, wasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, and, and it happens totally differently in crisis. And I think that's that's something that, that we could talk about but forever. But it, it did allow for a drawdown on a lot of that relational capital that existed with experts, with um, communities, with you know public, private, non-profit organisations in what we probably thought at the start, although the epidemiologists would have known better might be a short time frame but which turned out to be a very extended crisis um, and so the experience of COVID told us something also about crisis that perhaps we hadn't thought about as much because we often think of that as sort of short sharp shocks of crisis that we're going to be in this for a short period of time there's a terrible natural disaster everybody seeds their turf there's there's existing ways of operating that we can mm. use to to marshal all the resources that we need um, to deal with that crisis and then we sort of go back to our own patch um, and perhaps at the start that's what happened with COVID but over the period you know over an extended period of time we had to institutionalize some of that way of working and and I think it allowed uh, government to build new types of trust and, and relationship with parties that perhaps have, have deepened. I'd be interested on David's perspective mm. on that but as someone who watched that with great interest uh, both from a researcher's perspective but just from a citizen's perspective it did seem to me that we were not sort of snapping back to the way that we did things before, but there has been some new institutional sort of architecture built and relationships built that will stand us in good stead for the future. Mm. So uh, take yeah. the invitation there, David. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation. I, I'd absolutely agree. I think you're absolutely right, Janine, like move from just a short crisis to longer crises but compounding events, one after the other. other. Like in Canberra we had the the hailstorm and then the the bushfires and then COVID and it just feels like it's continuing on. And then that kind of need for longer term architecture, I mean, National Cabinet's the obvious one. And I remember working very regularly with the states and territories through the officials mechanism 
and that that kind of definitely strengthened um, during COVID and you saw sort of a deeper relationship and a form of effective partnership from something that used to be quite transactional. Um, and then I think more broadly, the Australian government, because of the expectation of the Australian public that it, that's more involved, public servants are now much closer to the ground in terms of what's happening. So particularly our delivery agencies like Services Australia, they've got a much closer relationship with local councils and other community members, and there's a number of partnerships occurring at that level too. Mm. But David, to Janine's point about sort of going back to old ways, you're Mm. suggesting there that in terms of the gains made through COVID that there has been uh, improvement in the pa- partnerships, but there's also been improvement in the architecture that underpins the partnerships. I think that's right. And I think there's been new partnerships that have been formed as well, where the Australian government has strengthened the relationship with the states and territories, but it was also going down another layer in terms of having more direct relationships as well, beyond just the usual types of, say, the peak organisation groups that it would normally deal with. Now, partnership sort of seems to suggest the sort of an equality of position, but ultimately, you know, in your case, David, it's the government and the policymakers who will make that decision. So how do you manage um, a partnership when, in fact, there may be that imbalance of uh, decision-making and power? Yeah, that's a great question. It can be hard. I think what certainly helps is just a a shared understanding of everyone's role and and governance around that can really help. So that that provides clarity on what the role of each partner is, how they can contribute to the ideas and the information, but then ultimately who the decision makers are. Uh, Because Sometimes you wouldn't want the situation where a partner is joining and feeling like their, their contribution should also be deciding on decisions. In some cases, that just can't be the case. So the Sydney Energy Forum, ultimately, it was the Australian government that decided key aspects to the event, but we were very clear in the partnership in the terms of reference, the role that the Business Council had and the International Energy Agency had in contributing to the discussion and the ideas. And we worked with them very closely and a lot of their ideas were incorporated, but ultimately it was the the government's decision. So I think think that kind of terms of reference style document and communication helps, but also you've got to go to some of those other key ingredients elements Janine and I were talking about earlier around trust and respect. And I think once you've got those elements, you kind of, even if you get to tricky points, you can kind of find a way through. Yeah. I mean, one ingredient that we haven't spoken about, but I think he's sort of lurking around our, our conversation and, and it goes to this point about power is humility. And I think there is, there's something that when you get in, we've talked about vulnerability and we've talked about um, trust and, and so on, but, but there is something when you do have great power as you know we're talking about sort of the power of the commonwealth government here in in different types of partnerships there's a i think there's space in there to be humble about that power and and part of the challenge of developing partnerships and great relationships with a whole range of parties is is being able to to say we don't have the answer i mean that's the ultimate sort of expression of humble government. There, there are academics working on this idea actually now about this this notion of humble government and, you know, this sense that you can say we don't know the answer. That's very risky in different political environments. I, I would note that it's the Finnish government that's talking like this, a completely different political um, 
setting. But I think the idea is interesting. Um, it allows for some of the things that we spoke about and David mentioned around changing, about being a bit iterative, changing our minds, taking on new, new information. And I think um, to me that's been something that I've been really interesting to watch, this idea of we're living in a much more complex world. Um, obviously it's characterised now by things everybody's got a name for it, by polycrises, mega crises, all interacting with each other at once. Um, it's a complicated place. But within that, no one party is ever going to have the answer to everything. And there's a there's a sort of sense, I think, particularly in this post-COVID world emerging, that humility can be a good friend um, to government, the sense that we will have to adapt, we won't always have the answer, and that working in a partnership model can help us to get at least some of the best possible responses. Um, and in the end, as, as David explained with the COVID experience, um, citizens expected government to be out front of that. They expected government to bring together all of the capabilities to be able to resolve that crisis. Um, they weren't looking to other sectors to do that. They appreciated, obviously, that we drew on all the resources that we could across um, community sector, across the private sector and across government. But there was an expectation, absolutely, that government led that. Um, and that's the obligation that comes with that power. So it's interesting, this, this notion of humility, isn't it? Because can an organisation be humble or is it really the people who are inside those organisations who need to... To, to be humble and display humility. It's, I, was, I was just saying, when you said can organisations be humble, it reminds me of the questions of can organisations trust each other? And on the one hand, we sort of think they can, but really they're made up of people, aren't they? And it's the human-to-human -human interaction that builds that trust um, across organisations and across sectors. And we, we talk about sort of this idea of legitimate or highly trusted organisations, which David mentioned Um there, that's built up over time, not by some weird legal entity, but by the actions of people who comprise that, leaders in it. And so I think it's really interesting question, you know, where does trust come from? Where does humility come from? But it's expressed through the behaviours of members of that organisation. So David mentioned the idea of public servants being much closer now um, to where sort of implementation happens. And that's been a lesson from COVID. But that brings with it, I think, an obligation for that humility that we're not always going to have the answer. Usually people living in their own community will know what needs to be done and we're very happy to tell you if you've got the listening yeah. um, ears on. Indeed. So I, I think it's a combination. It becomes embedded in the routines and the culture of organisations and you can structure and engage in things in different ways. You know, people talk a lot about co-design and co-production, um, but that brings with it a sense that people have to have the skills and capabilities to do that in different ways in partnerships. So, David, for you, the leading people and teaching people and showing people, how, mm. how do you bring humility into the your team it's it's really hard because you have to be vulnerable like i think it goes back to that so being really open when you you don't know uh, some of these big projects that i've led it it starts by sort of finding those those key partners and you're sort of jointly sharing the problem and then you kind of in the boat on the journey together yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the twists and turns and so i think if you up front at the beginning and then everyone's on board you, you kind of share the journey together and 
uh, Janine's reflection around, I think it absolutely is the people. And I think if you have enough core of the people within the organization, that then creates the organizational culture and the work that you know, has been done around the the values of the public service, I think is really important because th- things like respect and trust, I think, go a lot go to the humility point as well. Mm. Now, a, a final question to both of you, and it really is about looking into the future and and, and thinking about improvement, uh, stronger partnerships, uh, and looking from a public sector point of view, what we might be able to, you know, hope for, perhaps dream for, in terms of future behaviours around partnerships. David, I might th- start with you. Oh, sure. Um, so I think, firstly, more of them would be good because uh, the ones that I've seen have largely worked pretty well. I think the second point I'd make is uh, that if some of them fail, generally that should be okay, depending on the sort of the tolerance for risk and what the project is. So I think more experimentation and learning. It's about the public service kind of building its muscle um, and building APS capability in terms of how we do it. And I think the third point I'd make is the kind of more conscious decision-making up front before launching a big project. Conscious decision-making about sort of how are we going to go about and do this? Are we going to do this through a partnership? Would that be beneficial? Or would some other form of model be beneficial, whether that be forms of consultation or collaboration? So that kind of really deliberative process rather than just, oh, let's do it the way we've always done it um, and we'll think about consultation at a later point so yeah more of them more experimentation and more more deliberate decision making is, is what i think we should do and to you Jeanette? i think the learning aspect is a really interesting one so thinking about what's worked and what hasn't in the past and sort of building in some feedback loops for that because it's no it will be no surprise to anyone who listens to this who knows me to say that we've been doing this for a long time and trying to launch, you know, big collaborative endeavours and partnerships mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and we keep coming back to some of the same questions. This is hard work. I've described it in an article I wrote as a hard grind. You know, this is not you wake up tomorrow and we've got a partnership. This is iterative work over a long period of time. And those barriers, what are, you know, to, to call them out, what are those barriers that you've, you know, you're, you're running into time and time again in, in your research? Yeah, so some, some of it is about what we call a supporting architecture. So for all of the goodwill of people who might want to build relationships and build trust, we do have some things hardwired into the way that we do government, whether it's programmatic styles of budgeting, whether it's the way that we do our performance management, which is in a very, um, tends to be, not all the, all the time, but in a fairly siloed way for good good reason in the system that we work with. So asking um, people to be able to to buck against that in a sustained way over long periods of time is really too much. And we have to think about how we can adapt some of the architecture for different types of projects that we want to do. We don't have to tear, tear the whole thing down or burn it down, but there is opportunities and we've seen them work. Um, and usually they're operating outside of the normal way that we do things. So there's something in that magic um, of operating outside. Now we might not want to do that all of the time, but the experimentation is important. Building in the feedback loops for what worked um, is really important. So we, we found a lot of it was in that supporting architecture or what my good friend would call getting the plumbing right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of that is around really important things like budgets, performance management, how do we build our systems and structures to support that 
support that work. And David, perhaps a final word, given that you are sort of in the middle of some of those constraints, how, how do you manage those? Uh, I think as a senior leader uh, now, particularly the, the, the Minister for Public Service has been pretty clear around her expectations on how she wants or the government wants to build public sector capability and we've got a big agenda with MPMNC, a new secretary position on public sector reform. Um, so, yes, there are some of those barriers and architecture that needs to be put in um, but in the meantime, I think pretty clear message from the government that, that we need to be more focused on partnerships and the expectation that senior leaders just get on and do it. Well, Professor Janine O'Flynn and David Pullen, thank you so much for sharing your reflections on partnerships today. Common purpose, trust, vulnerability, time, respect diversity, patience, experience, listening, humility. There's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. And really, it's about practice, I imagine, as much as anything else, is really to start with uh, you know, the end in mind and really to, to move through those qualities to be able to uh, you know, achieve better outcomes ultimately for the Australian people. So thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. Thanks very much. And again, thank you to Janine and to David um, for that fascinating conversation and very insightful conversation about the improvement of partnerships. And it's encouraging, isn't it, to see that it is a priority of the APS, that the government is going to try to improve. Uh, It is going to improve, not try, it will uh, improve these partnerships. So that's a great thing. So listen, um, everybody, if you'd like to follow either Content Group or IPA ACT on LinkedIn, that would be great. Um, Or email events at act.ipa.org.au. If you have any thoughts about the programs or you'd like to ask a question or have any sort of insight, Work With Purpose is produced in collaboration with uh, Content Group and the Institute of Public Administration of Australia in the ACT, and it's supported by the Australian Public Service Commission. There are many past episodes that you can listen to um, on your preferred podcasting platform, whether it's Spotify, Apple, uh, Stitcher, wherever you are uh, listening to your podcast, make sure you do. And if you do have time to leave us a review, it always helps us to be found. So a big thanks again to David Pullen and Professor Janine O'Flynn for coming in today. My name is David Pembroke, uh, and I'll be back at the same time in two weeks with another fascinating conversation. It's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 